This is Joya Italiano. This is Jeff Ekman. And welcome to Oh, That's a Thing, a podcast about the real science and sci-fi movies. Even if you haven't seen the movie, don't worry. We use the movies as jumping off points for some pretty awesome and real topics. That's right. We're not experts at all. We're actually just a couple of goons who Googled some stuff. But this stuff is pretty cool. Yeah, so sit back, relax, maybe learn a thing or two. Here we go. Here we go. Jeff, the gravity of the situation is more than I can handle. Oh, no. Are we going to be brought down to earth in this episode? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) We watched the movie Gravity. Yes, we did. Which is maybe my favorite movie of all time. That does not surprise me. Not saying it's the best movie of all time. But your specifically favorite movie. My personal favorite. I'm a sucker for all things space. I had wanted a space disaster movie for years before this came out, and it finally did. And you and I saw it for the first time in IMAX 3D on opening night. The the man theater? Yeah. I think it was the Chinese theater. Yeah, Yeah, the Chinese theater. And I remember I started crying from the opening image. Oh, God. (laughs) I didn't, but it was pretty fucking awesome. <laughs> yeah. Let's listen to the trailer. Let's do it. Explore's been hit. Explore. Do you read? Explore. Explore. Astronaut is off structure. What do I do? Dr. Stone is intact. No. You must be intact. Pass that arm's gonna carry you too far. Listen to my voice. You need to focus. I'm losing visual of you. In a few seconds, I won't be able to track you. You need to detach. I can't see you anymore. Do it now. What a trailer, man. What a fucking movie. <laughs> God, I love it so much. Well, it paid off because this film is second only to Cabaret from 1972 to receive the most Academy Awards without winning Best Picture. It won seven Academy Awards. Wow. I've also read that this was one of the most successful sci-fi movies of all time and the biggest box office hit of both Sandra Bullock and George Clooney's careers. Is that right? Yeah. Between like fucking Ocean's Eleven and Speed? I know you would think, right? But yeah. no, this movie was just a huge hit. I, I really, upon second view, like, it's really fucking good, man. Yeah. I like this tagline, don't let go, mm-hmm. which is just, I mean, of course we can titanic it up but really i just (laughs) what i liked the most about this movie is sure it takes place in space and that's it's very specific to like a you know the vacuum of space that Mm -hmm. adds the Mm -hmm. like element of fear or whatever but really it plays a lot with you know past ideas of shipwreck or just Mm -hmm. being lost and you know kind of those very human feelings castaways yeah basic survival like you know in castaway he at least like has oxygen and an environment with which to hunt right there's something normal about it in the sense that you're like, I'm on ground, mm-hmm. I feel the ground beneath my feet. She's just fucking floating around in space. You don't get a more extreme environment than space. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> the, the opening title says, at 600 kilometers above 
planet Earth, the temperature fluctuates between plus 258 and minus 148 degrees Fahrenheit. There's nothing to carry sound, no air pressure, no oxygen. Life in space is impossible. So it just sets yeah. the stage for you like, <laughs> what could go wrong? It is impossible. Yeah. Written and directed by Alfonso Cuaron, mm-hmm. who is an amazing director. He directed Harry Potter 3, okay. which is Prisoner of Azkaban. Right, right. It's, the, I think, the best filmed Harry Potter. Okay. But he also made Children of Men and a bunch of Spanish oh. language movies that were incredible incredible and he's one of the best filmmakers out there in my opinion yeah he co-wrote the screenplay with his son jonas who was okay. very young at the time i wasn't sure who jonas was because i saw that they developed the script but i was like brothers no, no but father and son father and son oh, cool mm-hmm. yeah because i had read that they developed the script at universal but universal decided that it was too expensive early mm. on and they put it into turnaround right. so the movie spent four f- years in development because the technology required to realistically depict the vacuum of space was not there yet but that all kind of changed in 2009 with James Cameron's Avatar. Yeah. So that was a big thing. But yeah, I was fascinated to find out some of, you know, the filmmaking techniques that they had to use to create this realistic vacuum of space. I know right? it must so, have been crazy because shooting in zero G environments is really difficult. I know in Apollo 13, they shot some scenes in that parabolic, they call it the vomit comet, where uh-huh. it's like a plane that for 30 seconds, it drops at a speed where it, you go zero gravity. Oh, okay. And so they would shoot like 15 to 20 second scenes at a time when in zero G. Gotcha. But now we have a photorealistic CGI. And so yeah. you can do much more interesting. Or yeah. Basically, well, because so initial shout out to the well obviously Alfonso the the director but then Mm. the cinematographer Emmanuel Lubetsky and visual Mm -hmm. effects supervisor Tim Weber they were kind of the masterminds right because they Mm -hmm. realized that clearly we're not going to use just traditional filmmaking methods to achieve this so for example for the spacewalk scenes so they shot the actors faces and then created everything else digitally and so even from just like a lighting position it's like they needed to light the actors faces to match the digital environment of the earth sun and stars in the background oh man the, and like <laughs> the, the lights, planning that goes into oh, that oh yeah because think about it it's like the light had to move at the exact right speed and be in the right position it's like the contrast or density on the faces had to be right oh my god lighting jargon yeah. but really it's like such an amazing challenge that I probably take for granted when watching the movie but now thinking mm-hmm. about it I'm like yeah fucking I felt all the, the lighting being was lit by the, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so then Lubetsky suggested folding an LED screen into a quote unquote light box which was this nine foot cube big enough for just one actor and then a manually controlled lighting system consisting of 1.8 million individually controlled LED lights was built whoa and so that way, rather than moving Sandra Bullock or George Clooney around in the middle of like static lights, the projected image could move while they stayed still. So it was an image of a light. Yeah. That's And it would move around them. Yeah. Well, like whatever CG world that they created would move around in the background and mm-hmm. then they were stationary, which makes sense because like think about just fucking any film shoot you've been on. It's right. like just the setup of the lights takes so long. Well, that even reminds me of the thing that they built for 2001 A Space Odyssey yeah. back in the late 60s. Oh, yeah. Where it was like that huge rotating set mm-hmm. and the person would run along the bottom of it and the whole set would rotate around him. Exactly. Because what I was going to say is like when Sandra Bullock enters the International Space Station airlock and takes off her spacesuit and shit, mm-hmm. she sat in a rig with a bicycle seat and then had her right leg strapped into this two-part brace inside a specially made chamber. Mm. And then she would just mine the movements or whatever, which you know they had choreographed from however long beforehand. And then the camera rig was slowly rotated to create the illusion of her and the station's rotation. Mm. And then in post-production, her right leg and the braces were erased completely and recreated with CGI. 
Oh, so she's partially part of her body isn't really is there. Cyborg, yeah, wow. it's like her like in this rig, and then mm. she's doing all the movements. I, I'm the gonna... blending of CG and live action shooting is like the real change. Fuck yeah, that changed. You you look at like action movies from the early '90s, and they had to frame things in a way where they the camera isn't looking at the pad that the stuntman is going to land on. Yeah, now you right. can show the whole thing and then digitally remove the pad. Absolutely. Well, and especially well, this was an interesting tidbit is that Tim Weber was saying that eighty percent of the movie consisted of CG compared to Avatar which was only 60% CG really so it's even crazier to think about Avatar which I only think about as being like the right. most CG exactly. but then it's like but they did so much work to create realistic CG which right. we don't normally see I mean well the first time I even saw like photorealistic movie CG was in like a Pixar short and yeah, they're, yeah. they're only getting there in the recent years and the idea that you could do an entire movie where it's kind of easier when you're doing like metallic objects like in space and stuff like that than yeah, doing live Yeah, or T-1000 life. shit, mm-hmm. you know, like right. liquid metal. Like. But even so, like the fact that you can now have photorealistic looking CG things yeah. means you can do a space epic for the first time. Absolutely, it was fucking without crazy. Without going up there and shooting it up there in space. Yeah, dude. Oh man, I, this is really impressive and especially as like not a... I don't produce films in any kind of technical <laughs> regard, but it was really interesting. And then, like, according to Glenn Fremantle, who is the sound designer, obviously creating sounds for a film set in a soundless environment mm. presented many technical challenges. Would, but yeah. So what he used was an acoustic guitar that was rigged with microphones on the outside and then hydrophones on the inside, which is a microphone, but that detects sound waves underwater. And then he immersed the guitar into a tub of water and then basically just like rubbed different shit against the guitar underwater. Think about that. Some of the sounds were just like... Yeah, like it's it like feel- these deep, like you can feel like the rattling of the spaceship yeah. that's coming from an guitar. underwater guitar. Yeah, man. Awesome. So I know the the magic of cinema. It's yeah. crazy. Foley artists, they're crazy. Um, and then of course we we certainly appreciate the fact that the opening scene is just this like single continuous shot that's like twelve and a half minutes long. Yeah, and you don't even realize that. Like I remember even this last viewing, I was like wait a second, we haven't cut once. And it's just like floating around and them just like doing their space business and shit. And like, much like WALL-E, <laughs> that like first 45 minutes with no sound, you kind of don't even realize mm-hmm. that there it was a continuous shot until the fucking space catastrophe yeah, happens. A couple of fun casting notes. Alfonso, I'm not going to do his last name because I feel like Quaron. every time I have to be like, Quaron, yeah. but I'm not going to do that. So Alfonso <laughs> originally wanted Salma Hayek to play Dr. Stone, oh. but the studio refused because no one would believe a Mexican astronaut. Shut the fuck, fuck up. you, dickheads. There are Mexican astronauts, there are, right? There's gotta be. I mean, that's just some bullshit. But anyway, Angelina Jolie was originally, yeah, he's checking it out right now. Jose Hernandez is a Mexican astronaut who, yeah, like we've worked on space shuttle missions, shit like that. That sounds like some garbage universal bullshit that, <laughs> I mean, universal picture bullshit, not like yeah, universal I, racism bullshit. Oh boy. Anyway, so he originally wanted her. Mm-hmm. They didn't believe it. So then Angelina Jolie was originally cast, but then dropped out, which I could totally see that. I mean. I don't find her any more believable than no, someone no, I No, or Sandra Bullock. Yeah. Like, let's be clear. Yeah. Like, <laughs> is anything, I don't know. Fuck, fuck that. But anyway, Natalie Portman turned it down before she announced her pregnancy. And then Rachel Weisz, Naomi Watts, Marianne Cotillard, Carrie Mulligan, Sienna Miller, ScarJo. ScarJo. Sorry, ScarJo. <laughs> so all of these people were considered, but I definitely appreciate the, the Sandra Bullock decision. I don't feel the necessarily the same about George Clooney. That felt a little bit funky, I'll be honest, because... I don't. I don't know why. I just felt like maybe perhaps at this point George, George Clooney is so just like an icon of like mm-hmm. I'm cool. 
cool. That right. I just like can't. He's not a character actor. Yeah, he is Daniel Ocean as right. astronaut Daniel David. I don't da- know what his name. Whatever is. it was, he's finger gunning in a way yeah. where it's kind of you know what I mean. He's doing vocal finger guns yeah, throughout the exactly. fucking movie. But apparently Robert he's, da- he's winking at you through every word that he says. <laughs> yeah, totally. Robert Downey Jr. was originally in that part, but then he left the project, which I could see Robert Downey because he's got that kind of neurotic like yeah. I'm a smart guy kind yeah, of vibe. Yeah, definitely. But then they also they were looking into Daniel Craig, Tom Cruise, Tom Hanks, Harrison Ford, John Travolta, Bruce Willis, Russell Crowe. Who, Crow, who wasn't Costner. on this list? I know. It sounds like, and I don't know if these people were just like considered or if it sounds like a lot of people also like turned it down, which is mm. kind of crazy because it's fucking awesome. Yeah. But this is all to say that I wanted to give some straight up love to Sandra Bullock. Uh-huh. Like, she was great in Speed, and she's great now. Yes. But basically, she spent six months in physical training while discussing the thematic elements with the director, including the possibility of rebirth after adversity. Mm-hmm. Like I was saying before, the motifs from shipwreck and wilderness survival, and just basically the psychological change that results as a you know a- after catastrophe. Mm-hmm. Zeroing in on her breath and how specifically that breath was going to dictate her emotions. Like it might be she's hyperventilating from stress related issues mm. or the fact that there's just a lack of oxygen. So like really yeah. playing with that the idea of breath and life, which I'm going to talk about later. Yeah. In the when show. the disaster first happens, it's kind of all about her breath. Yeah. As she tries to get just her breath re- under control yeah, to get it under control. That lasts for like five minutes of her just getting it's super crazy. intense yeah. because you're totally like you have to remember to breathe. Yeah. Like as an audience member, I actually had to be like, you're not in space, Jeff. You yeah. should breathe. Well, and even in the trailer, watching her little helmet fog up, I was like, oh man, I feel how it is. Claustrophobia. Yeah. Yeah. But then, of course, the whole idea and concept of the creation of life. I mean, there's there's the whole symbolism of the big bang of the space station followed by yeah. Dr. Stone eventually kind of in the fetal position, like mm-hmm. a child in the womb. And then... There's even tubes coming out of her that like look like they're umbilical cords. Yeah, totally. And then, of course, her crash landing on Earth and mm-hmm. kind of emerging from the ocean as the amphibians originally did, which there's a little frog that hops across or whatever. Right. So what's crazy is, as she's working on essentially the choreography, I mean, like they basically had it down like one, two, three step, one, two, three, to, to do her movements while she's on the space station. Mm-hmm. So then she was able to really hone in on all of the emotion there. And even James Cameron, who is apparently Quaron's best friend, didn't know that. He said, quote, she, meaning Sandra, she's the one that had to take on this unbelievable challenge to perform it. It was probably no less demanding than a Cirque du Soleil performer, from what I can see. There's an art to that, to creating moments that seem spontaneous, but are very highly rehearsed and choreographed. Not too many people can do it. I think it's really important for people in Hollywood to understand what was accomplished here. So... Mm. Yeah, because like she's incredible. She's fucking awesome. And then for the majority of her shots, she had to be placed inside the giant mechanical rig, like mm-hmm. I was talking about before. So she chose to do that because it took so much time for her to get in and out. She chose to just stay in there for up to ten hours a fucking day, mm. and then she would just communicate to people via headset. So then Alfonso Cuarón was saying that his biggest challenge was just to make the set feel as inviting and non claustrophobic as possible. And they even had like a celebration every time she came on set. And then the <laughs> there was like a lighted sign or something that said Sandy's cage above the rig. The rig that I was she... like, Sandy's here, get, the Sandy's get, get her in the cage. <laughs> yeah, That's so great. I just, I guess I just appreciated not only what they were able to achieve in post-production and whatnot, but just all of the preparation that went into it and the fact that like such a big, huge celebrity like Sandra Bullock was mm-hmm. still just like, no nah, man, I'm there, love and her. God, I just, watch this movie. <laughs> Everybody should watch this movie. Just watch the movie. Science. 
So, you know that I've been fascinated with space disasters for many, many years. Truth. And I wanted to talk about some space-related disasters. Let's do it. So, one thing that's interesting and often frustrating about the space race is that it was a race. Yeah. In that we didn't want to share vital information that one side had discovered, even when it was a smart safety precaution. Mm -hmm. So a good example of this was that in 1961, the Soviets were doing tests on their cosmonauts that included putting them in high pressure, high oxygen environments for close to a day at a time. Mm -hmm. There was a tragic accident where one of the cosmonauts near the end of the test pulled off the electrodes that were attached to his skin and used alcohol swabs to clean the glue shit off. Oh, wow. And then he threw the alcohol swabs out, but missed the garbage and they landed on a small space heater. Oh, fuck. In the pure oxygen environment, the swabs instantly ignited. And because the pressure chamber's door opened inward and be the pressure changed from the fire, the crew of people running this thing couldn't open the door in time to save this guy, Valentin Bondarenko's life. Mm. So that was in 1961. And because of it, the Soviets made a lot of changes, mostly surrounding pure oxygen environments and an awareness of those fire dangers. Yeah. In 1967, we Americans hadn't heard about this. We were running a test on Apollo 1 in a high oxygen environment with a doorway that opened inward. Mm -hmm. The circumstances were very similar to the ones that led to the Soviet fire. A short circuit in some wiring sparked and a large amount of Velcro, which ignites suddenly in a high oxygen environment, yeah. exploded. And just like with the Soviets, we couldn't open the door in time because it opens inward. Because it opens inward. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Why couldn't they open it in time? Because of the difference in pressure. Okay. When there's a fire happening in an environment, it changes the pressure inside. And so there was so much outward pressure from the inside of the gotcha. thing, they couldn't push the door open. Mm -hmm. The three astronauts died. Oh, I see. So let's talk about the space shuttle Columbia for a minute which burned up when re-entering the atmosphere, killing seven people in 2003. You remember this? Mm -mm. Really quick, just so no one's confused, Challenger, which is different from Columbia, is the one that exploded on launch in 1986. A lot of kids watched that live on TV because for the first time ever, a teacher was going into space. Gotcha. But Challenger's disaster was caused because a lack of safety concerns. Mm -hmm. So people had warned that it was too cold to launch that day in January. Mm -hmm. And basically what happened was there's these rubber rings that keep certain sections of those big rocket boosters separate. And when it gets too cold, the rubber can kind of freeze and harden. And so when the rubber is hardened, it can allow stuff to get past it because it's not making a perfect seal the way a soft rubber would press up against something. Right, okay. Some explosive gases were allowed to leak past this rubber gasket and go where it shouldn't have been, and the Challenger exploded. But Columbia was a disaster that actually could have been saved even after the whole thing was set in motion. Mm. Around the time of the launch of the Columbia shuttle, a big piece of foam insulation that was on the top fell down and slammed into the heat shield, which created a big hole. A small group of people within NASA suggested that just to be safe, the astronauts should take a short spacewalk to inspect the heat shield. They even could have done it by like using the big robotic arm that the shuttle had and having it reach around underneath and using a camera look at it. Higher-ups at NASA refused to even look. They were so worried about getting like the mission done and mission done fast. And some people even thought if there is a hole, there's nothing we can do about it, so we shouldn't even look. That's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Oh, bummer. So the safety concerns are leaning in this era more towards we need to finish these missions and be under budget than the concerns of the actual safety. Right. So what ended up happening was NASA decided not to look and the crew was killed. But had we looked, 
what would have ensued would have been like this massive rescue mission that could have taken the entire world's attention, kind of like how Apollo 13 Mm -hmm. captured the world's attention, like hoping that we could find a way to bring these people home. Right. The crazy rescue mission would have essentially been like this. You fast track the next space shuttle to get it ready to launch as fast as possible. You get it up within two or three weeks, get two people on that mission to rendezvous with the stranded crew. Then they would attach one shuttle to the other using the robotic arm, and each individual astronaut would get into a spacesuit and kind of shimmy down the arm from one shuttle to the other. Okay, I could And then that. come home on the other shuttle. The problem with that idea, even though, if we had done it, is that another shuttle could have been hit by another foam strike, and you could have just stranded two more people up in space. Okay. And so the rescue mission would have been incredibly dangerous without having solved the foam issue. Mm-hmm. The thing about all these times when major space disasters have happened is that they come along with like this period of complacency in the space agency. And anytime there's like a disaster, everybody kind of gets like smacked in the face and goes like, okay, let's be serious about safety again. And then a couple of decades go by and the priorities shift to the administrative things and these kinds of things start happening. Yeah, I see that pattern pretty (laughs) infrequently. Pattern of humanity. But where, so where are we now? I mean, are people starting to at least incorporate those safety cautions a little bit more. There's more like free flow of information and stuff. We're not in a space race anymore. Right. Well, as far as sharing information, a lot of the stuff that happened in the Russian space program that was kept secret was opened to us in 1989. So we now are way more aware of everything that happened in the process of learning all these things. Mm -hmm. But now there's the other question of we don't really share information with the Chinese space race. Gotcha. And one thing that I wanted to quickly mention is that in the movie, she goes to the Chinese space station Mm -hmm. and that space station is not docking compatible with the International Space Station and with American satellites and stuff. Yeah. I mean, well, it's interesting you say that because I, (laughs) of course, when I look into the movies and stuff, it's, I look into the factual errors on IMDb because there's there's so, everybody's a scientist too. (laughs) Neil deGrasse Tyson takes every movie to task. I know. I didn't hear his fucking speech about this, but you know, it's always... To me, I was wanting to look because it's also like, you can learn something too. But one of the things that I read about is how difficult it is to reach another object in orbit, Mm -hmm. which is one of the things, because like essentially accelerating an object in the direction of travel will actually not move you forward. It's like you you expel that energy to to raise the object's altitude and Mm -hmm. then that kind of puts you back in space or whatever. Right. So it was essentially just saying like for her to directly aim at the Chinese space station in its own independent orbit would not give the results that we saw in the movie. Right. That's obviously like an offshoot here too, but I was just like, how does the Chinese space station work into this? And like, what's their deal? (laughs) Well, their deal is that we all do these things separately. Nowadays with the International Space Station, it's basically most of the space organizations of the world. Like Italy has a space organization Mm -hmm. that contributes like pieces of the International Space Station, for example. JAXA is the Japanese space organization. They have their own contributions. And this is why I was so like, what? They're Mexican astronauts. It's because we share astronauts from all over the world. Yeah. And it's not only Americans and only Russians on the International Space Station. But you're saying we don't share that information? The Chinese seem to be separate right now. Yeah. They're kind of like the new Russians. in a way, if yeah. you want to oversimplify it, yeah. <laughs> if you want to oversimplify it. Well, the thing it. is, like, I keep thinking about how the only thing that's going to wake us up to the fact that America is no longer number one in the world will be seeing a Chinese person planting a flag on the moon. Yeah. 
Like we all like we've I all mean, got nuclear arms. Well, but, but I, nobody's I, been to the moon but us. Right. And I say they're the new Russians in the sense that it's like our competition yeah. with China yeah, is yeah. going to potentially limit or hinder. Or, well, or yeah, like and the in- simplified thing was more me going like, well, they're way behind. Whereas yeah. like we and the Russians were like at the same level. Yeah, totally. I don't know, some stupid thinking. I'm going to talk about the Russian Soyuz rocket that was built in the 60s and is what we use as Americans today to get into space. Oh, bummer. <laughs> Come on. Science. This movie focuses a lot about the vacuum of space and how there's no sound up there. That's right. So I wanted to talk about that a little bit. So there's sound in places where there is a medium through which sound waves can be transmitted, like an atmosphere or an ocean. Mm -hmm. Sound waves are basically just oscillations and pressure that travel through the medium that they're in. In most cases, this is a series of compressions where the molecules are closer together and then rarefactions where they're further apart. This is just caused by molecules moving backward and forward. So the common explanation for why space is silent is that space is a vacuum and so there's no medium for sound to travel through. But based on my readings, (laughs) I've learned that this isn't exactly right because space is never completely empty. There's always a few particles and sound waves floating around. Mm. Now, here on the ground, there's a lot of air around. Each square centimeter contains, okay, this is a number that I had to look up on web math because I was like, that's so many zeros. I don't know how to say that (laughs) word. But I discovered it's 300 quintillion. Oh. So there you are. There's a lot of zeros there. That's how many particles per square um, cubic inch? Yeah, there's, there's that many molecules for each square centimeter of air. Wow. It's a lot. So in interplanetary space, on average, you'll find only five protons in the same volume. That's a lot less. Right. Protons, because space, like 99.9% of the entire universe, isn't filled with gas, but with plasma. So that's why it's protons. But okay. this is a different state of matter made of charged particles. So this means that plasma can generate and be affected by electric and magnetic waves, which can give rise to the plasma equivalent of sound waves. These are known as magnetosonic waves. Oh, shit. Hell yeah. So these are pressure waves, but with some, you know, a little bit of magnet spice (laughs) tossed on top. So we as humans can't hear these in space because the pressure variations are so small. It's like minus 100 decibel sound pressure level where human hearing can only hear positive 60 decibels or something. Okay. So you'd need an eardrum the size of Earth to hear them. That's oh. what I read. <laughs> that's so I was like, great. What? I don't know. I need, I need a fucking visual in order to get there. I guess that's because that's how many particles would hit the Earth relative to how many particles of air are hitting our eardrums oh, makes down sense. here. Because I was like, that's a big fucking eardrum. Yeah. I don't know, but thanks, science. <laughs> but it's also like, you know, these ultra low frequencies are way below what humans would be able to hear. Right. And so why it actually like matters and why scientists are looking at it is that in Earth's magnetosphere, which is this little magnetic bubble we live in that protects us from space radiation, these magnetosonic waves can transfer energy sound. So this energy can be given to the radiation belts that surround the Earth, which are just like, I guess, these little donuts of radiation. That's how it's described. Mm-hmm. That they, they it can create these killer electrons at extreme energies that can damage our satellites if we're not careful. Oh. So if scientists can predict when, where, and why these magnetosonic waves occur in the space around the Earth, they could forecast when the satellites might be in trouble and then put them into 
safe mode, essentially. And they're going to do this through an eardrum the size of the earth. That's right. They're, we're that's building it. it now. The only thing. <laughs> no, so one of the ways they listen for these sounds is using geostationary satellites that primarily monitor the weather. Oh. Because these satellites have magnetic microphones that can detect them. Ooh. So the problem is that scientists are struggling to like separate out all of these different sounds because we're still just like listening to it with human ears. So what they're able to do is amplify the sounds and then basically squash together a whole year's worth of sounds into what is just six minutes. And then those can be made audible, which they did on SoundCloud. Let's oh, listen to it right now. <laughs> Let's do it. What? So that's that sound. That sounds fucking horrifying and violent. (laughs) I know. I'm surprised they didn't use some of those sounds in the movie. I know. My God. I know. And that's what was crazy is even this article that I found, which of course I'll include links. It was like, so what do you guys hear? It's like they're almost at the point where like anybody (laughs) from far and wide can listen and try to figure out what it is that they hear. But I guess that was just the most fascinating thing to me is that it's like no space actually isn't silent. It's just our little human ears can't hear and they require like crazy technology to magnetosonic waves. Didn't know that was a thing. I'm pretty sure that I heard Paul is dead in there, right? That was Paulie Shore is not, not dead? But not Paul. Oh. No. <laughs> that Beatles thing where they like, if you play a Beatles song backwards, oh. there's like a legend that like, they're like, Paul is dead right, or something right. like that. Oh. Yeah. Anyway, that's not in the space sounds. Space isn't silent. so there's no shortage of disasters in space that i want to talk about (laughs) i'm letting myself loose this is the second to last episode where i'm going for it let loose so a few months after the apollo one fire here in america the soviets were ready to reassert their dominance in space of course and they wanted to test their new capsule which would eventually was supposed to take men to the moon. Mm -hmm. That was called the Soyuz. And in short, the Soyuz was not ready. Mm -hmm. First of all, they had done three unmanned launches, all of which failed, so now they decided to try it with a man on board. Say that one more time. All three tests of this system exploded, and the fourth test, they decided to put a person on it. They were like, fuck it, we'll figure it out. Well, they were like, it's probably ready now. What? But they actually knew that there were more than 200 faults in the system that engineers were aware of going into this mission. They were just so hell-bent on beating the Americans, blah blah blue This was actually a regular thing where the first manned mission with three different people in it was the same exact space capsule design as the one that sent Yuri Gagarin into space. Okay. The only difference was that they removed all of the safety redundancies to fit more seats inside. I can't. I can't. So this is like a thing that had worked for them in the past. Right. Flying by the seat of their pants. The Soviets didn't announce a mission as even existing until after it came back successfully. So we now know that there are cases of cosmonauts dying and being erased from history. Can we just put this in the context of... I need to know my timeline. My mm-hmm. timeline. When did the dog get thrown up there? The dog was in 1958. Okay, so that, okay, that was gotcha. when they killed the dog. That's, yeah, uh, fucking roasted. And, you know, they had a philosophy more that when men first set out on ships in the ocean, mm-hmm. people expected to die sometimes. Yeah. And that's how they saw the space race. But these people were like badass test pilots mm-hmm. who like loved the idea that they were in danger. Totally, I understand. 
So in the case of this Soyuz flight, as I mentioned, there are cases of cosmonauts being erased from history because nobody knew who they were and then they died. Right. But in the case of this Soyuz flight, they had this guy, Vladimir Komarov, who was already a famous cosmonaut, having gone into space already. Mm -hmm. And so when this went wrong, they couldn't hide it so easily. Soyuz 1 launches, and immediately when it's in space, problems start. One of the solar panels is stuck and doesn't deploy, making it so that there's barely enough power to even operate the thing. The attitude control just didn't work, so he couldn't really control the spacecraft. And even the communications broke down. So very quickly, they decided to abort the mission and bring him back home as fast as possible. And he had to do the re-entry manually, which is insanely difficult and not something that should ever be done. What does that even mean, man? Usually, the computer systems are orienting itself and then fire these retro rocket boosters, as they're called, which are like these small rockets on the ship. It basically stops the spacecraft. Like Mm -hmm. you were talking about how like the weird orbital mechanics where it's like instead of firing it downward, it just fires it like kind of in the direction that it's going so that the spacecraft basically stops and starts falling down to the Earth. Gotcha. Okay, okay, okay. So he pulls off this re-entry that like should have been nearly impossible to do by hand. So he makes it through into the atmosphere. And the re-entry that was portrayed in Gravity where she's like going in and she's screaming and the instrument panels are like yeah. lighting on fire yeah. and like the hatch is like starting to cave in a little bit and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. All of that happened to him. And there was even radio broadcasts that were heard of him cursing the engineers. Really? As the parachute did not deploy. Oh, and he slammed no. into the ground at full speed. So you like heard his audio of like, I'm going to die, yeah. basically. Oh, And blaming the engineers for doing this to him. Oh, jeez. I mean, it is crazy because obviously there's part of me that's like, yeah, dummy, what did you think you were getting into? But I also appreciate that sort of, it's ultimately just a sacrifice exactly. that the man made for for progress. So I both appreciate it, but also I'm like, you know, when we just question, like, why are we doing this to what end? Well, how necessary is a sacrifice? That's, that's what I mean. Exactly. Exactly. And for what it's worth, that accident made the Soviets fix the Soyuz spacecraft to an incredible degree. It was originally designed in the sixties. And as I mentioned earlier, it became so reliable that it's still used today. And because we don't have a space shuttle anymore, we use the Soyuz capsule. But from the sixties, like that's fucking bullshit. I mean, there's been very, Variations on it and yeah. improvements to the design, but it is still the basic. They call it the Soyuz, and it is the Soyuz design. That's kind of one thing that boggles my mind, too, is it's like you wouldn't make the movie Gravity in 1992. No. Why should we be using the same kind of design of a space shuttle from earlier than <laughs> right. 1992? Yeah, like, like, if it's the just, technology has made it this far in filmmaking. Yeah, like pogs aren't a thing anymore we moved on (laughs) well we do have plans on the books and like things that are being built to start sending our own men back into men and women back into space Uh, it's so easy when when you talk about space for it to be like man well we say mankind we say i mean i i'm not trying i wasn't being like jeff no i know you know that i'm not (laughs) the one at fault there but clearly but but again it's like again the mentality going into like god we got to beat those motherfuckers exactly it's definitely not the most feminine quality that's it was who can piss on the moon yeah like it was like a talk about pissing contest look at my dick <laughs> look at it <laughs> look at my dick it's big <laughs> so there's the whole sequence that we were talking about before where sandra bullock is hyperventilating and mm-hmm. you know she deals a lot with her breath and 
Yada yada. I wanted to I talk about hyperventilating. Yeah, I don't know if I could have gotten my breath under control. No, dude, that's fucking. In- it's so intense. My God. <laughs> okay, so anyway, I wanted to look into hyperventilating. So normally you breathe in oxygen and then breathe out carbon dioxide, but when you hyperventilate, you inhale much deeper and faster, which can actually change what's in your blood. Hmm. So the carbon dioxide levels in your bloodstream drop too low, which is when you start to feel sick. So this already, I know this is like a very small little tidbit, but like already I was sort of like, wow, this mind-body connection. So this hyperventilation happens most often to people between the ages of 15 and 55, which is Hmm. a pretty big fucking range. I was like, that's so like adulthood, (laughs) essentially adulthood. All right. But women hyperventilate more often than men do. It may happen more often when a woman is pregnant. Of course, when it happens pretty often, you might have hyperventilation syndrome, which is a thing. Okay. But a lot of things can bring it on. It's anxiety, stress, panic attacks, asthma, super hard exercise, emphysema, or another lung disease, high altitude, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. But to me, especially, it was like the anxiety connection. And what, what I appreciated the most was when I was reading about not only the symptoms, but especially how you can get yourself out of the phase of hyperventilation. Mm-hmm. It's focusing on controlling your breath and a lot of the same exercises that I do on a daily basis in yoga. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And that's kind of what was crazy is it's like, you know, if you're hyperventilating, you can control your breath by pursing your lips and blowing out like a candle. Like, I'm like, oh. that's yoga breath. It's for yoga E. <laughs> or like breathing slowly through your nose and out through your mouth. Mm. There was even something that I read about where it's like you limit your airflow by keeping your mouth closed and then pressing one nostril closed with your finger and like breathing through one nostril slowly and then exhaling out the other. Yeah. And these are all exercises that my yoga teacher has done. And so this is less of a like information and data dump and more this I don't know. I'm like, I'm really fascinated by the mind-body connection when it comes to breath and also the, 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 the mental outcomes of that kind of thing too. Yeah, it's fascinating that we can mess ourselves up so bad and yeah. that like we can force ourselves to have like, it's not enough carbon dioxide. Is that what winds up happening when you have Well, two- it's because you breathe so deeply. And what I read was that the carbon dioxide levels in your bloodstream drop too low, but to, which kind of makes sense yeah, if you're like... Okay. <gasps> Right. And you're then like, too much you're not oxygen. able to exhale right. And mm-hmm. so really a lot of that, you know, maintaining your breath, it, to me, it seems like the focus is more on the exhale. Right. That's even something where she's like, breathe. My yoga teacher will say like, breathe on the count of six and then exhale on the count of eight to 10 or something. So okay. it's like the exhale has to be much more than the inhale hmm. in order to kind of like regulate it. And, you know, for somebody who is a neurotic weirdo my whole life, it's been like a huge challenge for the past six years to do this because I'll be like, nah, I want to get to the exercise. I just want to lift myself and Uh stuff but really like taking the time to breathe in and breathe out first of all I just think on a meditative level is really fascinating but then when you just think about like physically what it's doing to you like I had never thought about it in terms of carbon dioxide versus oxygen and like you can physically feel sick because your breathing is not regulated yeah that's what's so interesting to me about like that old thing about breathe into a paper bag yeah because if you're recycling your breath over and over again you're increasing the amount of carbon dioxide that you're taking in so it would totally replenish the amount of the low carbon dioxide that's in your blood right which I would have never I mean that's a trope that I've seen a million times of somebody breathing into a bag or whatever but to think like, yeah, there's a phys- it's because there's a it. you need the carbon dioxide in order to reach that equilibrium. And I imagine the f- act of that probably slows your breathing down slightly and forces you to be more aware of your breathing yeah. as you watch the bag inflate. I mean, I think that's really what it is because 
I mean, gosh, I've been such a like judgy person in my life when it comes to the yoga thing because I'll be like, we're getting too spiritual, man. I'm in it right, for the physicality. Right, right. But truly, like the the focus and attention that it takes to just regulate your breathing when yeah. it's really easy. Because that was the other thing I wanted to say about hyperventilation and panic attacks especially is like you absolutely bring it on. Mm-hmm. This is not something that just like happens to you and then you're like, whoa, I'm in this before I knew it. It's like right. you're fucking, and at least in my experience, you're freaking out about something mm-hmm. and you cause yourself to be like, oh, I'm freaking out, I'm freaking, I'm freaking. And then before mm-hmm. you know it, I'm like tingly. I'm like, I've got all of those things and I realized like this is absolutely a self-fulfilling prophecy. Man. Which is different than what Sandra Bullock experiences. You know, she's in the vacuum of space. She's right. actually got these things, but she's really dealing with just an extremely stressful situation. And you can't think clearly if you're in that state. No. So she has to first calm herself down before yeah. she can figure out what to do. I mean, truly, if there's not like a healthy dose of oxygen and carbon dioxide getting to and fro your brain, how the fuck are you going to see yourself out of whatever catastrophe you're in? You're not. So that's, that's kind of what I appreciated the most about it is like, yeah, we know what hyperventilation is. But like, you know, why the breath matters and stuff. So that's something I want to look to into the future. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's cool. I want to mention a few other disasters in space from the Soviet space program. Yeah. So one was called the Nedelin catastrophe. Mm. Basically, in 1959, a rocket unexpectedly exploded on the launch pad while tons of workers were around. More than 160 people were killed. But their bodies were sent to different cemeteries all around the country and their families were told to lie about their causes of death because no one could know that this terrible thing happened. The Americans at the time registered on seismographs the explosion because it was such a large explosion that we could feel it as an earthquake on the other side of the earth. That's fucking crazy. So at that thing, a famous general who was named Nedelin and was already known had died there. And people believed that he had died in a plane crash until 1989 when all of this was made public. Mm -hmm. Up until 89. Yeah. From 1959 to 1989, people thought that this general died in a plane crash, but he was actually at this rocket explosion. I feel like there's going to be so many more of those stories. There are. In the future. (laughs) There's like, I, that's just to the tip of the iceberg of the stories that wound up coming out in what was known as Glasnost in 1989 when the Soviet Union fell. What's the difference between a cosmonaut and an astronaut? There is none. Oh, okay, okay. It's just what they call... Just Ru- what Russian astronauts are cosmonauts? Are cosmonauts, okay, exactly. Okay. That's like just the simple You were being super PC and I was like, oh, there's got to be something there. No, there's nothing there. <laughs> okay, so this is another factual error that I can insert right now. Oh, <laughs> bring it up. Bring it up. Even when they're in just the space station, the astronauts without their little pressurized suits or whatever mm. would have like bloated or whatever like we talked oh, about. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There were a lot of those kind of small right. little notes. It was like, Sandra Bullock wouldn't be wearing a tank top and booty shorts Mm -hmm. you know she'd be wearing a full sock or whatever but it did it did kind of focus on the you know human skin being exposed to the the vacuum of space right it would probably look really fucked up yeah but it's like you're making a fucking movie so move on with your life right right still see that's the thing it's like you can watch a movie and not just be like a sanctimonious dickhead you can still just be like that's not right yeah forsooth the real truth is that yeah for for truth for truth All right, this is a real drink for title section. Oh, I'm ready. Because how could I not talk about gravity? That would have been a real miss. I know, we were like, and that's all we have for you today. (laughs) All right. Well, there's One of the four fundamental forces. Tell me about it. There's a fuck ton to say about gravity, obviously, but I just found a couple of fun tidbits. So apparently, our brains perceive gravity's direction through multiple senses. Hmm. Our vision, the vestibular system, and our inner ear, among others. 
And so, like, for example, we can keep our balance when our eyes are closed, but we're definitely better at it when our eyes are open or yeah. if we're, like, touching something or mm-hmm. whatever. I just came from yoga. Definitely right. better when my eyes are open. The more points of contact, the more reference you have for your orientation. Definitely. Yeah, I didn't even think so about that. So just even think about that on a simple level. But according to research published in the April 2011 issue of the journal Plus One, Ah. Hmm. Scientists measured how well people gauge how objects might fall through various tasks. So one way was they they gave 15 volunteers laptops that showed CGI pictures of vase-like objects that were tipped at different angles over the edge of a table. And the participants were asked to indicate whether each item would fall or whether it would right itself. So the participants were tested while sitting upright as well as lying on their sides. And so, of course, they fell along a spectrum of judgments regarding gravity's true direction, but people were typically better when they were upright than when they were on their sides, which suggests that, you know, some people are more biased based on their body orientation than others, or that, you know, we really perceive gravity based on where our body is in space. Mm -hmm. This is presumably because we spend most of the time with an upright posture. For example, like if you watch people surfing or skateboarding or, you know, extreme sports are a great example because it's like they're always trying to keep their head as upright as possible. Mm -hmm. But according to the researchers, because we rely on information from different senses to come up with the best estimate of gravity's direction, we're prone to error when this information is no longer in agreement. So what the researchers are trying to figure out now is to they're trying to investigate the role of each sense that's involved in our perception of the stability of an object, for example. Hmm. Like, if you do the same task, like this vase task that I was talking about, during and after exposure to microgravity, it can help determine how objects are perceived as stable in the absence of gravity and whether the brain adapts to such environments by changing the relative role of sensory cues. So people who have been in space and are oriented to how gravity works there are going to do worse at this test when they come back down to Earth than somebody who's been hanging out on Earth? Well, first of all, the, the the people that they're testing on are just lying on their side versus upright. And so automatically you're kind of like, oh, like our whole human perception of like gravity's direction is based on where we are oriented in space. And so it's sort of the building blocks to even get to that level. For example, like it might help better understand why people, particularly children, have difficulty solving problems of equilibrium like the vase task that I was talking about. Like, is it going to right itself or is it not? So the coolest thing about this was that it's not necessarily just about people in space. I mean, that's that's an idea. It's like, well, you know, what if you add microgravity to the whole thing? But like, really, they're trying to figure out how just like human humans deal with it. Because for example, like it might also give insights into patients with sensory problems. Like in a previous experiment, they worked with patients with Parkinson's disease. The research team was able to show that that the patients relied less on their body orientation Uh. and more on actual gravity when having to recognize objects in different orientations. We've talked about this before where it's like, certainly in terms of like, when you lose a sense and the other ones start compensating. But I feel like we've talked about this in other contexts where your brain is constantly trying to build its own reality. Yeah. And it's doing these things where it'll like error correct for things that it perceives to be wrong in the physics that it's taking in. If you have Parkinson's disease, like you have a quote unquote sensory problem and yet you're able to determine whether or not objects will fall better than just like a normal human being. That's so interesting. Isn't that interesting? Yes. (laughs) That they like actually look at gravity as opposed to what their perception or where like where their body is whereas like normal folks look at where their body is in in relation to gravity. Some daredevil shit. It's fucking daredevil, man. (laughs) 
Yeah, Daredevil with Parkinson's. Yeah. That would be a interesting. New spinoff. Yeah, take that, Marvel. <laughs> anyway, so I found some more gravity facts. This was interesting. We talked a little bit about this in terms of, you know, how bodies react to, like, being in space and then coming back. But, mm. like, specifically, astronauts' experience has shown that the switch from weightlessness and back can be really tough on the body. Like in the absence of gravity, muscles atrophy, bones lose mass. Mm -hmm. According to NASA, astronauts can lose 1% of their bone mass per month wow. in space, yeah. which is crazy. I know they have like crazy exercise machines and stuff like that. Like whether it's like one of the early ones was having a treadmill that also has straps around your shoulders. Right, to like so create the can, resistance. Yeah, so yeah. that you can fake that and make it seem more yeah, like you're on Yeah, because the whole thing with running is it's like your body is the resistance. Right. And so if your body weight like does factor in right. and it's kind of crazy well, and if you remove the gravity that your body is fighting right. against yeah then that, that's what, what i mean yeah, by yeah, the yeah, resistance yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah exactly so but then also in the same vein it's like blood pressure that has equalized mm. throughout the body mm -hmm. has to return to an earthly pattern where the yeah. heart is pumping the the blood right yeah you can almost see a lot of people who are in space they look like they've got like like when you're standing on your head and you kind of look flushed in your eyes and yeah. stuff like they all look that way yeah, I mean, I write about astronauts that, you know, they might have like passed out randomly or whatever, but it's all like your body equalizing because if you're in space and you're not used to like your heart being the center that pumps the blood mm -hmm. and it's really just like everywhere, then your body's like, whoa, I haven't done it. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's basically like inactivity for an extended period of time that your body is adjusting to. Right. But then also like the mental readjustment that can be just as tricky. For example, I read about in 1973, there was this astronaut, Jack Luzma from Skylab 2, that he told Time Magazine that he'd accidentally smashed a bottle of aftershave because he just like let it go in air and thought that gravity was gonna hold it. And, oh, that's know, hilarious, gravity like back when he was on Earth. <laughs> yeah. So that, yeah. I mean, that I find fascinating because it's like, you know, you fucking study abroad for a month and you're right. like, whoa, my whole life has changed, <laughs> let alone if you're like my whole, like everything that makes sense in my life doesn't make sense. I can't put this down and let it float. Yeah. If you were to like, <laughs> yeah, put a pen down and you got so used to like, all I have to do is drop it for a second and it's going to hang there. Yeah. That would be such a difficult that would thing to, to adjust to. Yeah, right? exactly. When it comes to weight loss and whatever, you know, if you're really like in that mode, you can go to. Pluto, for example, because a 150-pound person would weigh no more than 10 pounds on Pluto Ooh. because of gravity. The same person would weigh more than 354 pounds on Jupiter. That's a heavy person. And then Mars, Mars's gravitational pull is 38% of Earth's, so a 150-pound person would feel like they weigh 57 pounds. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I want to go to other planets just to be like, look at how much weight I lost. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, because I've heard about that, you know, just like that's what's fun about moonwalking and right. whatnot is you're just like, gravity is of no consequence. That's well, cool. Yeah, it's just interesting to me that it's like not just that you feel lighter, but that you're because your body has adjusted to you being, you know, 150 or 200 pounds, when it's one sixth of that, you have this like every step you take bounces you off the ground. Oh, yeah. Just, just because your muscles are too strong. Totally. Talk about mind-body connection. You're like, I'm the king of the world. <laughs> you just jump. God, there's some hilarious video of people doing spacewalks on the moon and like getting all excited about that and then tripping over and falling right on their face. It's great. Because we have in our mind of just like, it's fine yeah. and there's no resistance whatsoever. <laughs> and then like their feet get out from under them and they yeah. like, look like, and they fall slowly. Yeah. It's you're like still a, a clumsy motherfucker. Yeah, exactly. It's even better for America's Funniest Home Videos. It is. Okay, so this is what's fucking crazy and I honestly had not in my 31 years thought about this, was the fact that gravity is lumpy. Did hmm. you know this? On Earth, 
Gravity is lumpy. So even on Earth, gravity is not entirely even. Okay. So because the globe is not a perfect sphere, its mass is distributed Mm. unevenly. Mm. And since gravity over an area is proportional to the mass atop that region, uneven mass means slightly uneven gravity. And I most certainly did not know that about the Earth. Well, yeah, I mean, it's not something that I imagine we can perceive, but that's so cool. Well, one mysterious gravitational anomaly is in Canada's Hudson Bay. Really? Now, this area has lower gravity than other regions, but I was reading that satellite data revealed a thick ice sheet that once covered the region. Hmm. So this is suggesting that the ice from the last ice age has melted, but the now melted ice has left an imprint. It's essentially, this is the best analogy I could possibly think of, or that I read, rather. The Earth is slowly rebounding like a memory foam pillow. Oh. The ice pushed it down, like the, the glacier's imprint pushed aside some of the Earth's Earth's mass, uh-huh. so gravity is a little bit less strong in the ice sheet's imprint, and it's hmm. slowly being like, like it's rebounding from the ice age. That's so cool. Fucking crazy. glaciers are heavy as shit. Heavy as shit. And it, I'm like, I don't know off the top of my head, don't know how long the ice age was, but mm. just imagine if like, you release that, it's melted, but it's still like, and now yeah, we're yeah. regaining ourselves. I can't help but think like, let's launch some rockets on that spot. Like, will we, can we save some fuel by going well, there? Right, right now, they're even just trying to fucking measure it. Like, yeah. a lot of these scientists are trying to, like, find this missing gravity, which That's I think so is cool. really fascinating because basically these results from the satellites are able to provide at least a crude map of the ice sheet structure as it was during the most recent ice age, which is fucking crazy. But I also had not... First of all, known that gravity fluctuated, but also that like ice sheets would be able to affect that like right. a memory fucking pillow. Yeah. Reading about some of these satellites in particular, it's called the Gravity Recovery and Climate Experiment or GRACE. Ah. And so they're, they're, it's these twin satellites that fly in tandem and they're constantly keeping track of the distance between them while taking measurements of gravity in that area. So as the front flyer passes above an area of striped gravity, it feels and reacts to the pull before mm-hmm. the one trailing behind and so that tiny little jolt changes the distance between the two satellites and then these microwave finders can nail down the distance within one micron which is slightly smaller than a red blood cell or 2,000 times tinier than a pinhead that's fucking precise (laughs) I know I was like technology is crazy wow I can't believe they can do that yeah so they're basically able to reveal that this like slight deformation as a result of the the ice melting explains this like 25 to 45 percent of this unusually low gravity in that specific part of Canada so what's crazy is it's like it'll help scientists understand ice sheet dynamics and how mm. climate affects the mass and distribution of ice over the Earth. And my world is blown apart. <laughs> That's so amazing. Yeah. I, what a cool system, the two satellite things. Yeah. Like I was imagining just in a very fun like, hey, we're just satellites flittling and flittling <laughs> yeah. about. But yeah, dude, I mean, I think when we talk about just like our understanding of our our world and our place in it, I mean, to, to be at this stage in 2018 and not really know that even the Earth because of its misshapen spheritude is there's not equal gravity all over the places like fucking nuts yeah it is and that's kind of relates to something i want to talk more about next week where it's like something that i feel like we've learned over this show is this constant push and pull of like we've come so far and yet we know nothing absolutely and it really is like the meeting of these things you're constantly either feeling like humans are capable of anything and constantly then in the next breath going humans don't know shit about this yeah 
and then also how like our own fucking sci-fi works into that. Like yes. that's the biggest thing I want to talk about too. Yes. Because for example, there's this 2007 study that was published in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Mm. They found that salmonella becomes three times more virulent in microgravity. Virulent, virulent. Huh. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's something about the lack of gravity that changed the activity of at least 167 salmonella genes and 73 of its proteins. They did these experiments where it's like mice fed these gravity-free salmonella got sick faster and blah 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 blah. So it's like when you think about the Andromeda strain. It's like, it's not necessarily the danger of infection in space from like space bugs. Oh, it's man. our fucking bugs in Going space. Going into space and then maybe and coming back powerful. down. Oh yeah. my God. So yeah, that's that's kind of one of the craziest through lines about the show too, is just like how science and sci-fi build upon each other right. and our understanding of it and certainly how we combat it or how we deal with it. It's, yeah. It's As you nuts. once said, art imitates life, imitates art. Imitates art, art imitates <laughs> life. Yeah, that's a joy of quote. so let's talk some more about dangerous spacewalks (laughs) that's where we're at i've got no shortage of shit to talk about with dangers in space (laughs) in particular i want to talk about the first spacewalk ever done which if you don't know was done by the soviets and in general if you're wondering about who did it first in space other than landing on the moon it was the russians yeah First satellite in space, first man in space, first satellite to the moon, first satellite to Mars, first spacewalk, first space station, first pictures of the backside of the moon, the first woman in space. Oh. By 20 years, beat us by 20 years. I, could I be surprised? We haven't had a woman president. I mean, my God. <laughs> my God. Well, they were the real pioneers in this shit. I, I don't think that, you know, there's like some traditional masculinity in that country to this day. Oh, yeah. And, I'm not uh, at all trying to be like, yeah, man, they're the they're the ones. But, but it's but again, what competition will make you do? You'll be like, fuck it. Anybody can get up there. Yeah. Well, we yeah. First. And she was this awesome person. But let's not get too sidetracked. Yeah. The first ever spacewalk was done by this badass motherfucker named Alexei Leonov. <laughs> OK. We barely knew how we being all of humanity. Right. Not, you know, I'm counting <laughs> us with the Russians. Jeff says we a lot. And like. Like, I always know what he means, but I appreciate the explanation. Like, <laughs> humans. Yeah. <laughs> we barely knew about how a space suit would react to a vacuum, and it turned out we hadn't figured it out yet. So think about how extraordinary of a moment that must have been to be the first to step outside a spacecraft and look down at the Earth from space. Right. Like, how right. elated he must have been, followed by a moment of absolute terror. Oh, yeah. Because his suit started to balloon up. And he looked back at the small doorway that he would have to fit through to get back inside the ship and tried to pull his arms towards his chest, making himself small enough to fit back inside, but he couldn't do it. So he's looking at this situation where he literally will not make it back into his capsule. Why did it balloon, do you know? Well, because we didn't understand the differences in pressure and what happens to like an inflated tire in a low pressure environment is it inflates more. Understood. So it basically just inflated all the way up and he was like this starfish kind of like unable to move his arms. Yeah, man, fucking, what was the gum chewer in Willy Wonka? Oh, yeah, it was Violet Beauregard. Violet. Yeah, yeah, no, he was kind Turning of like Violet, that. Violet, Violet, yeah. All right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the suit was too rigid, so rigid he couldn't even reach the camera shutter that was on his chest, yeah. so he couldn't take pictures during this whole thing. So now he's sitting there probably thinking, I'm going to die here and no one in Russia will ever know I existed because he'd known other cosmonauts who had been erased from history. Right. And he probably looked at the suicide pills that he had been provided with. Oh! 
I'm so glad you mentioned that. Is that a thing? Yes, that's okay. a thing. Because I had read that just with regard to this movie that, you know, there was all of these rumors about NASA providing suicide pills mm-hmm. that NASA has like denied or whatever. And I was going to ask you about that. I actually. don't know if NASA has, but yeah. Roscosmos certainly has. Okay, okay, fair enough. But like cyanide pill? Or like, yeah, I believe about? it was cyanide. Fuck. Okay. So... He probably looked at the suicide pills, considered it, but as I mentioned, he's a fucking badass. Right. And he's not going to let that happen. (laughs) So one thing that you don't mess with in space is the pressure in your spacesuit, understandably. Right, okay. Change the pressure too fast and you can risk getting decompression sickness, like the bends. We talked about that shit. He slowly started bleeding off pressure from his suit in space, bit by bit, like eyeballing it. No idea exactly how much to release, but just kind of bit by bit releasing pressure from his spacesuit. Just releasing air? Like, yeah. How did he do like, that? Okay. B- effectively. Gas, or I mean. Yeah. yeah. Releasing gases from a valve bit by bit, allowing him just enough mobility to scrunch up and get back inside. Mm-hmm. So he gets back inside and his internal temperature shoots up to 102 degrees very quickly. Oh, no. His spacesuit starts filling with sweat. Apparently, it was, like, up to his waist, filled with, like, water sweat. Jesus Christ. And so he was alive and inside, but sick as fuck. And now it was time to come home right away. That means a landing that is slightly off course from the original plan. So Leonov and his crewmate, Pavel Belyayev, they landed in the middle of the woods during a harsh winter. Mm. So it was, like, this snowy mountain in the middle of the woods, and the rescue crews couldn't get to them right away. So they spent two days surviving in the snowy woods, apparently using the handgun that was on board to kill and eat a fox. Oh, my God. The handgun, by the way, the Soviets had those, which we did not, in case they landed in America and had to defend themselves. Oh, Jesus Christ. I know. Like, that's what's crazy is it's like now you're dealing with the elements because Sandra Bullock lands and it's like a beautiful island I or know. some shit. And it's like near land, thank God. Yeah, but just imagine if you're not only in the woods, but then you're like, mm-hmm. ah, and an even further adversary, just another right. human that I'm going to have to defend myself against potentially. Right. But so they're in the middle of the woods and finally after two days, rescue crews were able to ski to where they were, give them skis, and then they had to ski to safety. <laughs> like, what an adventure this guy went on. I mean, Russians are pretty intense from what I understand. This guy in particular. <laughs> Fuck, There's like crazy. other stories about him like diving into frozen lakes to save people. Did, like, he, did he die an old man? He's still alive. What? And he's awesome. <laughs> he's the coolest dude. See, this is this is one of those great pluses. Mm-hmm. I love it. There have been so many other close calls that people don't realize how close they were. Yeah. When there's a close call in space, you don't make it public. Yeah. So even Yuri Gagarin's flight, the first man in space, almost exploded when the retro rocket pack, that's the rockets that send the capsule back to Earth, which mm-hmm. I mentioned. Yeah. Those are supposed to detach but they didn't fully detach from his spacecraft. And so it sent him into a severe spin where it was so bad he almost passed out. And as he would have exploded on re-entry, the heat from the atmosphere broke the straps that were attaching the retro rocket to the capsule. Retro rocket flew off into space and it reoriented itself and Gagarin made it home. That's fucking crazy. And he didn't mention it until like way later because he didn't want like the amount of secrecy, the amount of like don't tell anybody else that there was a fuck up if you didn't have to in the Soviet program is mind boggling. Oh, yeah. But we've had astronauts fixing an instrument panel that suddenly deployed, sending two of them flying way off of the ship only to be caught by their tethers. 
Can you imagine that moment? No. We've had fires on space stations, which is really dangerous when you consider that you can't evacuate or even vent the smoke. By the way, after the major fire on the Mir space station, the Russians busted out some of their emergency vodka to relax. Of course. We're still humans after all. And we've even had water leaks in a spacesuit that almost drowned an astronaut, and he barely made it back into the capsule in time. Really? Oh, man. So if you're not getting it, space is the ultimate harsh environment. (laughs) (laughs) One tiny thing goes wrong, and basic human needs are instantly gone. Yeah. And, you know, it's a cliche to call it the final frontier, but it is undeniably the edge of human ability, and we love watching what's going on at that edge whether it's people charting the oceans in northern passages during a time when you didn't know if a hurricane was going to come yeah. fuck your ship up, or watching a man walk on the moon, it's like we're putting ourselves in dangerous new places, and when we pull it off, it's like a reminder that humanity is capable of growth, change, and new things. Well, I, I mean, and I really appreciate that because, again, as we were talking about before, it's like, yes, this this movie takes place in space, but so much of it has to do with the same kinds of mm-hmm. things of being, you know... You're separate from society. You're alone. You're stranded. Yeah. You're shipwrecked or whatever. But truthfully, all about overcoming adversity. And it's cool to know that we are doing new things. And yeah. I think that, like, there's no better example of proof that we aren't just running in circles, that we are growing and changing than the fact that we're going places where we've never been before. Yeah, man. I'm on board. Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> Feel it. Science. So the cause of the disaster in the movie is a severe issue with space debris and Mm -hmm. junk that we have surrounding this planet. So there's at least 8,000 tons or half a million pieces of space debris in Earth's orbit. Mm -hmm. And it's growing all the time. Yes, the oceans need cleaning, but so does space. (laughs) We've historically been littering every time we go up there because we have these gigantic rockets that launch something really small far into space, but all the pieces of the spent rocket have to go somewhere, and so they go somewhere. Yeah. In orbit. Yeah, yeah. Somewhere around there. (laughs) And actually, in the 1950s, when Americans looked up and saw what they thought was the first satellite going through space, Sputnik, which looked like a bright star that moved way too fast, they weren't actually seeing Sputnik, but they were seeing the rocket casing that had launched Sputnik still in orbit moving around the planet. Because Sputnik itself was too small to create that amount of light. Right. But what we all thought that we saw, which we thought was like spy satellites, and was an empty rocket casing. Mm -hmm. And even Sputnik itself was just a machine that went around and beeped. It didn't, okay. it didn't do anything. Right, right. But we were like, they're up there. They're up there, They're yeah. looking down on us. That's what I can see. So you combine all those rocket pieces with all the old satellites that we've put up there, and we aren't sending any expensive missions to bring back satellites once their batteries are dead. <laughs> right. And you get a very dangerous area with too many pieces flying around to track it all. Yeah. We're at a point where sometimes the International Space Station needs to be moved because of space debris. That, that's interesting. Okay. Or the astronauts will all pile into an escape pod and seal it and put on their spacesuits just in case some nearby space de- debris might come by, hit a section of the International Space Station. And so if it depressurizes, they'll already be in an escape pod, which is already sealed from that other environment. And then beyond that, they're in spacesuits themselves. I'm glad you brought this up because, of course, with my IMDb factual errors, a lot mm-hmm. of people were talking about how, you know, in the movie Gravity, it's like Kawhi 
Kowalski estimates that they're, they have 90 <laughs> minutes before the debris field completes the orbit and threatens them again and mm-hmm. whatever. And so there was a lot of criticism in the sense that that's not how things on orbit work, where mm-hmm. it's like it'd be unlikely for debris to reach the shuttle or the Chinese space station or whatever. Right. And then especially because the film shows huge numbers of debris hitting all at once mm-hmm. without paying attention to the fact that it's like this is the result of multiple collisions separated right. by time distance, blah, blah, blah. But I also read about something called the Kessler syndrome, mm-hmm. which I was or about the, to talk about. Yeah, that. yeah, the Kessler effect, which is named after scientist Donald J. Kessler, a NASA scientist rather. Mm-hmm. And so he first proposed the theory in 1978 in which the density of objects in low Earth orbit, specifically LEO, is high enough that collisions between objects could cause a cascade where each collision generates space debris, mm-hmm. much like we see in the movie, right. which would essentially just make it impossible to like do space exploration or whatever because it's like, our satellites, they're in danger. Right. So it was interesting to both hear like, that's not how orbit works, and then also that is how it works. And so it makes me wonder like between low Earth orbit and outside of that, if that maybe makes a difference or what? Well, the thing that I read about the Kessler effect is that it is potentially real. And in fact, some people think that it's already begun. But what's different from the movie is that it would happen over a span of 50 to 100 years rather oh, than okay. Like in very minutes. instant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. So it's like totally possible that this cascading situation, in fact, there have been like, without getting into the specifics of which satellites, there are certain satellites that have exploded and then caused other debris collisions. And right. so there's like a belief that this Kessler effect is already begun mm-hmm. and that it's only going to get worse if we don't find ways to to remove the space debris, but it's just not going to happen like that, like in the yeah. movie. Yeah, I mean, because oh, <laughs> another detail that I found was it was like, you know, in the movie, it was like every 90 minutes, the the debris field mm-hmm. comes back at yeah, you, yeah, and yeah. the movie is 90 minutes, and there you are with the 90 minutes. Of the ni- yeah. So it was like, there was clearly some amount of dramatic license taken, yes, but yes. I, I did think it was interesting to think like, well, it, it wasn't like in real time, the movie. Yeah. They, they have the debris field come by like two or three times, but... Right. Yeah. Like, but do you think there wasn't some amount of idea there? Oh, yeah. I think like, that they probably were. That's a great point. <laughs> right. Well, but, it's also, I yeah. think it takes, I think, 90 minutes for the International Space Station to do a full revolution around the Earth. That is correct. So... That is correct. All of this stuff, like, you know, the 90-minute day yeah, that they experience. <laughs> I had actually found that. It was like the ISS travels at approximately 17,500 miles per hour mm-hmm. and orbits Earth every 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. The debris field also circles Earth every 90 minutes. Right. Blah, blah, blah. La la, symbols. So space debris is a problem. <laughs> right. What are we doing to fix it? There's a bunch of proposals and even missions that are in effect to start the cleanup. Let's start with the simple. How about a net? Yeah. Yep. Space Nets net. or harpoons are a really interesting idea, especially if you can launch one net on a trajectory where it can sweep up a few different pieces of debris at once. But the problem is, like, you would have to make the net out of a very special right. material because it has to be insanely thin and light to be able to go through space. And they do have nets that may be able to like capture about a mile's area when it passes by, but that's still really, really small in space. It's funny because a few weeks ago we talked about the ocean cleanup and it's the same thing which like seems so massive and like larger than life, like cleaning up all of the ocean with just a net. What are you nuts? And they're doing it. And to imagine that like in space, on a space scale, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Totally. Well, it's a different type of net, yeah, but it's very light. Yeah, even so, I did find those parallels really interesting. Yeah, another idea is to use a kind of electrodynamic tether, which would slow down the speed of satellites, which would then cause them to fall down to Earth and burn up in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Yet another idea is this slingshot concept, which I thought was mm-hmm. really cool. 
where a satellite captures an object and then swings it around and flings it down towards the Earth, but then uses the momentum from that swing to sail off towards the next piece of space debris. Oh. So it's going to be this thing that, like, theoretically would hang out in space, right. like, go capture a piece of space and just swing it right. off down. You spike the football, and then that propels, propels you, you out to the next football, and right. you grab that and spike it. And It's great. Yeah. Like I was saying, human ingenuity, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's also ideas about regulations that would make it so that if you put a satellite up, you have to have a plan for it to come back down. Okay. But the number one plan for that right now would be to put small propulsion systems on the satellite to allow for that. But then you're taking the risk that that will explode, creating even more space debris. <laughs> so what are you? what is the best solution here? You know, a lot of people think using a satellite with a special type of magnet may be the best move and have it take a trajectory where it can scoop up a bunch of debris, follow behind it, and then bring it back down to Earth to burn up. But even when stuff comes back down to Earth, it's kind of litter. In, yeah. in fact, space trash. When Skylab came back down to Earth and re-entered over Australia in the 70s, the town of Esperance decided to fine NASA $400 for littering. Only 400 Nine, Well, you know, it's littering fine. Right. <laughs> NASA actually never paid it. And then a couple of years ago, an American radio host raised the money to pay off the fine. And it was like... <laughs> Fucking dead NASA, dude. I know. Clean up after yourself. Yeah, much like here on Earth, there's a (laughs) massive trash problem. And Uh, we've got bad plans to try and fix it. Bad plans. But we know that we should. Did you have any favorite lines? I didn't, dude. But I feel like the whole movie is the favorite line, frankly. But like, I yeah, I didn't write down anything. I had just because this is like they're tracking kind of Sandra Bullock's emotional arc where she had lost her child. And then back on Earth, she wouldn't go home. She would just keep driving. And, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. She goes through that period of time where she basically is going to kill herself in the Soyuz capsule and then decides, no, I'm going to survive. And she has this line as she's going to explode out to go to the Chinese station where she says, no more just driving. It's time to go home. Oh, man. Yeah, I love that. Uh, yeah, I just... Uh, the well, rebirth, the the change that she goes through is the correct amount for this movie. Right. Uh, you know. Well, and again, the existential dilemma, dude. Like, we're going to talk about it with Terminator 2 next week. It's like that final line is her being like, you know, if the machine could find, mm-hmm. understand the value in human life, maybe we can. And too, you know, exactly. it's like... It, I think so much of what we discover is less about the actual facts and figures and more about, like, what the fuck it means and, like, the meaning mm-hmm. that we ascribe. This, to me, was a really special examination of that because again it's like science jargon science science Mm -hmm. science but ultimately it's like the most human experience and story that could be told on on and it's it's easy to hear like oh there was an explosion and three astronauts died but to know the human story of the events that led to it and how it the experience of it was is the human part of these statistics you know yeah well, some of my final tidbits was I found it interesting that Gravity's budget was $100 million, mm-hmm. which was more expensive than the real Indian Mars Orbiter mission, <laughs> also known as the Mang- Mangalayan, which was $74 million. <laughs> the actual Chinese space station is named Tianyong, which yeah. is called Heavenly Place. He- I Heavenly didn't know Palace, about I he- Heavenly Pal- mm-hmm. Palace, right? Yeah. Now, at the time of the film's premiere, it consisted of one small habitable module, Tianyong 1, mm-hmm. which re entered Earth's atmosphere on April 2nd in 2018. But then the program's goal is construction of a space station much like the one in the film by 2022. This was the, the second test module was launched in April. 
2016. Mm-hmm. So it's crazy to think that like by 2022, they'll have achieved, I guess, what they achieved in gravity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. But, and and we won't even be using those space shuttles anymore. Will we not? <laughs> well, we haven't since 2011. We retired the space okay. shuttle in 2011. Yeah, no, no, no. The, well, this is where I've been re- referencing that like we, in order to get Americans into space right now, we use the Russian Soyuz. That's because we retired the space shuttle. I should have said this earlier in 2011. And we haven't had our own method to go into space since then. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So th- yeah. The, when this movie was made, the space shuttle had already been retired. Oh, and see, I didn't know that. It exists in this world where they mention, I think it's like STS 170 something. I can't remember the exact number, but it was the number of a mission that had never occurred. Gotcha. So it was like as though we kept using space shuttles this would have eventually occurred. Okay, that's fascinating. So finally, when Sandra Bullock attempts to make contact with NASA at ISS, at the left-hand side of her radio, there's a copy of the Vitruvian Man, which oh, yeah? is the famous drawing by Leonardo da Vinci. Da Vinci. Yeah, yeah. And that was one that I kind of wanted to look into because I feel like that's so just... I just recognize it so much that I've never like truly looked into you know, what What behind that, because it's essentially Da Vinci's belief that the workings of the human body is like analogous to the workings of the universe and whatnot. Right. But I've never truly looked into it. But I also think, you know, I pay more attention to in the movies when they make these moments, like, you know, like in the Matrix, when they have the simulacra and simulation or right, whatever. Right, it's right. like, there's a reason why Quaron put fucking Vitruvian man in there. Right. And I feel like I need to read up on that because, you know, Leonardo is a Ninja Turtle, but I feel like I need to know more about his whole thing. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, the most I know about that is that I think it has to do with like the proportions of the human body. Right, right. And like the, I don't know if there's like divine proportions or what. But, but especially like how much we examine how, you know, we perceive the universe through our own ridiculous perception. Like the idea, like as grandiose and amazing as it is that Da Vinci thought of us in relation to the universe, it's like that's such a human-centric way of looking at it that like somehow our bodies have to be entwined with the universe in order for Mm -hmm. it to make sense or like there's some grandiose plan. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to read more about it probably in the vein to be able to criticize it. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway. This movie was great. It was. My other favorite movie is Apollo 13, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's been a long time since I've seen it. it. Oh, see that again. Yeah. Like, I'm just into space disasters, and there's so much fascinating stuff about it. I recommend everybody to look into the history of the Russian space program, because I only scratched the surface of mm-hmm. some of the stuff there. Yeah, go watch this movie. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. He's, a, he's an evangelist for, for fucking gravity. I am. Well, with that... You can rate and review us on iTunes. You can find us at ohthatsathing.com and on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at It's Joy Mia on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Jeffrey Ekman, and we will be here next week for our series finale doing Terminator 2. T2, bro. It's gonna, we're going out with a bang. <laughs> See you then. Bye. Bye.